Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. Why do guys think that if they do one single thing around the house, they should be treated like a king? I got a little meme for you. A man, after he does one single thing to help around the house, Need to treat him as a king, right? Well, let's just say there's a guy named James. And he's got a wife named Donna. And let's just say he gets a wild hair to do something nice for her and vacuum the house before she gets home. Sitting home waiting like like this guy. Just waiting, saying, honey, I vacuumed for you. And which I'm sure she would appreciate it, but you know what? The bottom line is, I should do that anyway, because I live there. And uh, there, she does it many more times than I do, and I never give her that kind of treatment. You know what it's like. I mean, you, you all live under the same house with somebody or have lived with somebody, and you know that there's just things that you have to do to get done to, to keep the house running. But, you know, really, we're just doing what we should be doing and not worrying about who gets credit for it. But try to think of the other person and try to just be the best friend, sibling, spouse, whatever it may be, to share the house that we live in. But as we look at this passage today, uh, Jesus uses some course correcting words for the disciples. And this is a, a great parable that helps us see these are things that we just ought to do. We say that we're a believer, we just ought to do it. I say that I'm married to my wife, there are things around the house I should just, I ought to do because that's what we do. We help one another out, whether you be married or or single or you have somebody, you're young or you're old, you know, and all of that stuff. We do things just because we're supposed to do it. And as Jesus is helping teach the disciples the fact, you see, the disciples always, they had that in the back of their mind that they were going to be something. That they were going to be something popular and powerful and political. And so Jesus constantly, parable after parable, after action, after action, after word, after word, had to keep their ambition in check. So as we look at God's word today, we're going to be looking at Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And the first thing that we see is that our life choices affect others. Our life choices affect others. Now, that, that picture was taken on vacation. Don and I were in our friend's boat, and I just, if you've ever gone back and forth in a boat, whether it be on a lake, but especially the intercoastal waterway, when you're going down this, this small channel of water, your wake, or the waves that your engine creates, they ripple all across. And so that's not bad if you're the only boat there. But there were some people that they would be nice and they would slow down when they pass you. And then there was this one guy that just put the hammer down and you could have put a dollar bill between the two boats. And he passed by in the wake is, you know, and, but he didn't care. He just kept on going. The things that we do create wakes that affect other people. The things you do as a parent affects your children. Children, the things that you do affect your parents. The things that, for generations, the things that we do will affect somebody else. So our life choices affect others. 
That is so contrary to what the world says today. The world tells you, you just need to be happy. God wants you to be happy. No, God does not want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Happiness is a side benefit. But verse 1 says, One day Jesus said to his disciples, There will be temptation to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. I remember one afternoon I had picked up Donna from work and we were going down the highway and we were just, I forget where we were going, but, but we were just driving and enjoying it. And all of a sudden I heard it. And when you hear that, what's next? Boom. So I got out and I was in first responder mode, making sure everybody was all right. And I realized that I'd just been part of a four car pileup. And this is what happened. There was a driver. Bless her heart. She was the fourth car back, the last car. She was texting. She was singing. I don't know what she was doing. But she ran into, I mean, she almost ran through the car in front of her. So her car hit her car that hit her car that hit us. Yeah, that was fine. And that, that girl, bless her heart, she didn't know what was going to happen to her that day. But her poor choices in her driving affected not just her, but three other families. And the truth is, is that with you and with me, is that our lives can affect other people. And the thing is, is that we will be accountable for what we teach, not only in what we say, but in what we do. You see, Jesus was confronting the false teachers and the fake believers who were teaching wrong theology, and they were living as bad examples to those who were young in their faith. He uses the terms little ones. That could mean literally little children. That's why I believe children's ministry is so important, is because the lives that we we put, the people, the precious children's leaders that we put in front of people are setting the course for their lives. Sometimes they get that at home, and sometimes they do not. We have Vacation Bible School coming up, and, and we are going to get to pastor little children and show them the right way to live, not knowing what results will happen in eternity. But little ones, Jesus is warning that there will be terrible consequences for anyone who leads those little ones away from their faith. But it's not also, I mean, it's not only just for young children. It could be for somebody who's 98 years old. It's for those who come to know Jesus Christ and that are young in their faith. The problem we have in churches is that some people, they get enough Jesus to get saved, and that's where they stay. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if I saw a 50-year-old in a crib in the nursery, that would look kind of weird. But sometimes people refuse to grow in their spiritual life. But Jesus is telling those of us that have been around the block a while, that have, been, have grown in our faith, that we have a responsibility to speak and to live out a life that would not cause someone else to stumble. Now, he talks about turning away. I'm going I'm to talk about a, a church word today. Many of you may have heard. Maybe you've never heard this word, but it's a word called apostasy. Apostasy. Now, let me ask you this. What is the one sin that God will not forgive? 
Is it murder? Is it cheating? Is it stealing? Or any host of other sins? He'll forgive them all. Jesus' blood will cover that except this one sin. If you want to know the sin that God will not forget, it's called apostasy. Apostasy is turning away from Jesus. Apostasy is the abandonment or the renunciation of a religious or political belief. That's what the dictionary says. But apostasy is the only thing that cannot be forgiven. I think of, for example, Judas. We know that Judas played his part in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But you know, if you go back and you look at Scripture, there is nothing in Scripture that indicates that Judas was ever saved. He was around them. He handled their money. He was part of the crew. He would be much like someone who comes to church every Sunday, but is lost as a ball in tall weeds. But this apostasy, it's a sin of rejecting Jesus and refusing his offer of forgiveness. This alone is the unforgivable sin because it means that we are saying to the Holy Spirit's witness about Jesus is a lie. For example, Luke 10, I mean Luke chapter 12, verse 10, as you see on your screen, anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I've heard people say that I don't believe in Jesus and I will never believe in Jesus. That person is going to see the full brunt of this verse. If you're here today and you're questioning, that's okay. Jesus is big enough for your questioning. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if you are brave enough and if you are confident enough, if you are cocky enough to say that I don't believe in Jesus, it's just a crutch and I don't need him, you are on the wrong side of this verse. He also uses the millstone reference. In verse 2, he said, It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. Sometimes the Romans, they would punish somebody that if they were guilty of, say, some heinous, terrible crimes, they would drown them. They would tie a heavy weight to them and just basically throw the weight into the water, and then that person would not be able to come back up. The, the Jewish community, they, they did not regard this as proper punishment. They thought it was too inhumane. But Jesus, let me ask you this. If Jesus is saying this, this shows us one thing. That Jesus was serious about what he's saying. That you, and the millstone that he talks about, this is not like some, I remember going into my grandmother's uh, barn and she had the old wheel with the pedal on the bottom that you'd shape, uh, sharpen the axe with. Y'all, did y'all have some of those? I know somebody had some. You know the big concrete wheel? Okay, I got one. Big concrete wheel, and you just sit there and hit those pedals, and that thing would just spin, a big old concrete thing. This is not as big as that. It's bigger. The millstones he's talking about were the big millstones that they would have for a community to where you could bring your wheat or whatever you need ground, and there would be a big cement one on top, a big cement one on bottom, and it would grind as it goes through. And he said, it would be better for you to take one of those big old heavy millstones and tie it around someone's neck and throw them because it would be better for them to be dead and drowned than for them to lead somebody away from Christ. There would be no way someone could escape and they would die by drowning. But our point here is that we will be accountable. You will be accountable 
and I will be accountable. Every word that I share from this pulpit, I will have to eat one day. Every word that comes out of your mouth to your friends, to your children, to your loved ones, or whatever you do, we will be judged by those words. We will be accountable for the words we say. We will be accountable for the actions that we do and what we allow to go on in our world. If we allow anything to go on in our world that leads us away from our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus takes this seriously and so should we. What does this include? This includes the way we act at home, in church, in work. It includes the words that we say with our mouth. It includes the way we use our technology. Smartphones, computers, browser history. I remember it was probably ten years ago. This is how far it was. I think the iPhone 1 was out. Or just a regular iPhone was. And parents were getting these things for these kids. And I had kids in my youth group, boys in my youth group, that with their phone, they could access things that their parents had no idea about. Until they found out. Until something came up. Until there was an issue. We got to monitor what we put in front of our eyes. Parents, you've got to monitor what goes in front of your children's eyes. Or even the adults' eyes. Look, my parents, bless their heart, they, they got on a, uh, a email chain of some of you senior adults have all these other senior adults that send you jokes, right? Some of them aren't very godly. Be careful what you put in front of your eyes. Be careful what you send. You know, they say that our phones and our smart home devices, if you have an Alexa or a Google or a whatever you want to call it, I have a Donna. They say that our phones and home smart home devices are constantly recording everything we say. Does that freak you out a little bit? That it records everything that you say? It freaks you out. It freaks me out. But the truth of it is, God's been doing it for years. God knows everything that you say. He even knows what you don't say. But think. And He loves you anyway. Isn't it awesome? You have a right to be happy and to be your own person. But if it results in ungodly behavior and harms others that sin, you will be judged and punished for that. The second thing that we see in verses 3-4 through four, This is a good Baptist word. It's a good Christian word we're going to talk about today. Rebuke. You want to say rebuke? I know you want to say it. One, two, three. Rebuke. Oh, y'all didn't say it like Baptist. Come on, give me a good rebuke. You're going to rebuke someone. You're going to? There you go. Hey, man. Preacher will say that word, get red in the face, and everybody will say, what does that mean? Let me tell you what rebuke means. Rebuking is a good thing. Like example here, we have a coach or a father teaching his daughter how to get better at the golf course. I guarantee you, if some of you that are golfers were to take me on the golf course, you would cringe at every shot that I made. If I even connected with the ball, I would need coaching. I would need rebuking. I would need correction to better my stance. To, to get my attack on the ball better. Folks, rebuking can be a good thing. It says in verses 3 and 4, So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Notice it says if another believer 
sins. God did not call you and I to be fruit inspectors. He did not call us to identify every sin that the unsaved are doing. This is directed from believer to believer. He says, if another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, each time he asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. Here's the value of a good rebuke. When Jesus tells us to rebuke someone, it's important to fully understand what rebuke means. Because many do not understand its word. The definition of rebuke is to express sharp disapproval or criticism of someone because of their behavioral actions. That sounds very clinical, doesn't it? Let me give you some other examples of rebuking. To tell someone off. You got that one? You understand that one? How about to give someone the right act? Or to give someone an earful? To blow up at someone? To tick off someone? To chew someone out? Do you get the gist of it? Some of you are really good rebukers. You didn't even know it. Rebuking someone does not mean... If you are to rebuke someone or correct someone, or if you are corrected by someone, this is what it does not mean. It does not mean that we are better than someone else. This does not mean that the person being corrected is a bad person. The correction should be centered on our seeing what someone has a need for, not our personal satisfaction of getting someone. Jesus uses rebuke. Jesus used the word agleho, which I'm not a big fan of saying Greek words just so you can say Greek words in the sermon. But I want you to understand exactly what Jesus said. When he used the word for rebuke, it means to expose, to convict, and to reprove. reprove. Jesus was confronting those who were false teachers and behaving badly in front of those who are younger in their faith. And so... I highlighted this verse with two different colors. I want you to see something here. This is how, this is our use of rebuke. The problem with rebuking is that the one doing the rebuking only focuses on the first part of verse 3. Many people who rebuke only worry about the yellow part of that verse. This says, so watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Well, preacher, I'm just being biblical. I'm rebuking them because they are wrong. Do you know how much damage that does when you do it from a I'm a better than you kind of viewpoint? It says, so watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. You're only doing what's biblical, right? But you've got to put the second part of the verse in there. Because if you have no intention of seeing that person re- repenting, if you have no intention of seeing that person repent, if you have no in- intention of forgiving that person for what you're rebuking them for, keep your mouth shut. That's what the verse says. If you have no, if, if you are going to them and you don't want to restore them, keep your mouth shut. But if you want to correct them, you want to forgive them, and you want to restore them, then by all means, this verse is for you. Because it says, if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. Folks, to rebuke someone does not mean that we point out every sin 
that a believer makes. It means pointing out sins for the purpose of restoring them in their relationship with Jesus, in their relationship to the church, and their relationship with you. But use caution when rebuking. You've got to do it correctly. How should we rebuke somebody? 1 Corinthians 16, verse 4 says it perfectly when you rebuke somebody. As a matter of fact, any time you approach somebody about anything, 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, and do everything with, what do you think? Love. With love. If you are rebuking, if you are correcting another believer because you love them, they might not like the fact that you're rebuking them, but they will respect it. They will respect it. And look, if you rebuke somebody in love and you have the best of intentions and God has called you to do that, don't take it personal if they get mad. Because here's the thing. If you correct them on the basis of your opinions and your traditions, like in other words, if you yell at somebody who comes in this place with a ball cap on and you rebuke them right there, that ain't right. Because all of a sudden you are taking your tradition and you are taking your beliefs and rebuking them on that. However, correcting in love and in accordance with the Bible means that if you use Scripture as your guide, if they get mad, they're not mad at you. They're mad at the Scripture. And Jesus can fight that battle a lot better than you can on your own. The next thing we see is that there is a biblical way for believers to confront other believers. Now, <laughs> this verse, I laugh because I've had to refer people to it so often. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. Very few churches rarely do this. A, because the offending people decide they're just going to leave and go to the other church. Or start a new church. Or the church that is, is sponsoring this, or where this thing is happening, they don't want to make anybody mad. Here's usually how correction goes. If you have a problem with somebody else, or there is something wrong going on, first, y'all talk amongst each other, and then one of y'all that has an ear to the pastor goes to the pastor and says, Pastor, you really ought to do something about this. That's the way most churches handle it. For example, if someone on this pew had a problem with someone on that pew, it goes around to everybody, comes up to me, and I'm supposed to deal with that. Is that biblical? No. This is the biblical pattern. And it's laid out. It says, Matthew 18, 15-17, If another believer sins against you, you, not the preacher, you go privately and point out that offense. If the person listens and confesses, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Very few Baptist churches do this. I think in all my years, in all the churches I've been in, I remember one occasion where this was followed verse by verse. And it happened, and the, it was not pleasant, but the results were much more biblical than the way other things have been handled. Folks, if you've got a problem with somebody, you go to them. 
If you still have a problem with them, you get somebody to go with you. And then after that, after the third time, if if the preacher and a deacon or a friend or whoever go to them, and after the third time, the church says, okay, see you later. That's the pattern. That's how you rebuke biblically. So if you've got a problem with the way that works out, you've got a problem with this. This is how it's done. Correction. Rebuking. I want you to go back and look at that, that verse that was up there a minute ago. It's important to see here that correction, repentance, and forgiveness must go hand in hand. Forgiveness balances out rebuking. I don't know about you, but if you had a son or daughter that was doing something that was wrong and they were getting ready to put their hand on the eye of a stove, you would rebuke them quite quickly, wouldn't you? Because you wouldn't want to get burned. But yet if you see somebody in behavior that you know is wrong, we just say, well, I'll just pray for them. We know that you might be the only one that can go that God has sent to help them. The last thing that we see is that be faithful where you are instead of where you think you should be. Be faithful where you are instead of where you think you should be. Verses 5 through 6. The apostle said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. The Lord answered, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The disciples here had an honest question. They wanted to know, how can we increase our faith? You may be here this morning wondering, how can I grow stronger in my walk with the Lord? Why is it that most of us want just to be given three to five steps to accomplish something? If you go to any bookstore or you look on Amazon, there are no shortage of self-help books, business leadership books, cookbooks, instructional YouTube videos. You can fix anything today if you have the tools in a YouTube video, right? We just want to know the steps. But the thing is, is that even though there is a never-ending supply of resources, you may have come to find that the steps are given are not always easy. They don't always have the same results. What steps did Jesus give the disciples here to strengthening their faith? You look at your text. What steps did Jesus give them to increase your faith? (laughs) You'll see... He didn't give him many steps. Well, let's pill and call me in the morning. The doctor says, hey, we can treat this with medicine or surgery. Which one do you want? Give me the pills. Don't want surgery. Give me the steps. Tell me what I got to do. Well, you need to lose weight. Oh, I can't do that. Here's the thing. What does Jesus tell them? Notice Jesus doesn't give three steps He tells him, be faithful in the moment. Don't worry about having a greater faith. Just use the faith that you have. The little faith that you have. Some of you don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. You're you're waiting for that doctor visit or you're waiting for that that mail or that email or that text message or or whatever it may be. You're just waiting for the, the shoe to drop, so to speak. And you say, oh, Lord, how am I going to get through this? With the little faith that you already have. Jesus is not challenging us to obtain greater faith. He's encouraging us to use the small faith we have. Now, if you're from Holman Park, you know how to start a fire. 
Uh, I heard, I remember uh, Miss Bobby's brother told us one time that on your second birthday, everybody at Homeland Park gets a rake and a box of matches. They know how to start fires in Homeland Park. Now, if you and I have ever had to start a campfire with a flint stick or a stone, anybody ever had to do that? Ever had to start a fire with a flint stick? Yeah, I see. I see yeah, cool. It's fun, isn't it? Woof. Well, what you do is you have this flint stick and you get a, a rock or a stick or something or whatever. And then you try to find all these little loose stuff, loose things that will burn real quick. And you put stuff that will burn real long under it. So you get the spark, you get the kindling and you get that started. And then it starts. And then before you know it, you have your fire. I think of the old uh, campfire song. It only takes a spark. To get a fire going. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> if you're 50 and above. Uh, but the thing is, is that we need to quit thinking that our faith isn't strong enough to do greater things for God. You need to think that because of your age, whether you're too young or too old or too this or not enough that, the thing is, is that the very small spark of your faith will ignite the fire of a greater faith in your life. Just use the faith that you have. Be faithful where you are and He will be the one who will increase your faith. You cannot increase your faith. You can only use the faith you have. And any increase you have in it is to His glory. Amen? Don't compare your faith to others or set a bar so high that you will never meet it and live under constant guilt. Be faithful where you are and with what you have and trust God for the next step. Finally, we are not entitled, we are empowered. Verses 7 through 10. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal, put on your apron and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master think the servant, does he thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. Basically, Jesus is laying the smack down here on his disciples. He's giving them a big dose of truth. Jesus confronts the disciples' desire for entitlement. You see, entitlement is dangerous. A slave would never expect their owner to serve them in that culture. Even today, we don't always get a pat on the back. Your thanks today is the money that your employer puts into your bank account. I remember one time, this teenage boy, he was talking with his friend, and his friend said, yeah, my parents give me an allowance of $20 a week. He said, huh, I don't get an allowance. So he went home that... That boy went home and told his parents, Mom, Dad, I'm ready for my allowance. And they said, well, okay, son. Here's a list of chores that we want you to do during the week, and then we'll give you your allowance. He said, you mean you got to work for it? He said, they said, yeah, that's what an allowance is. You work and we pay. He said, oh, never mind, I don't want that. Can I have 20 bucks to go to the movie with my friends? We are not entitled to money. 
We are not entitled to rights. Regardless of what the world says, everyone does not get a winning ribbon. We work. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. It's in the Bible. We are not entitled. And the problem is is that too many people in church think they are. Our service to God is our duty. It's just what we do. Having a spirit of entitlement halts all the work that God wants to do in and through you. Entitlement stunts your growth. You will have no room for the Holy Spirit in your life because you're so full of yourself. And here's the truth. Entitled church members kill churches. Entitled church members kill churches. Tom Rayner of LifeRay Research said, an entitled member or a church with entitled members will have church fights because members get angry when they don't get their way. It also says that the pastor and staff are thought of as hired hands. Instead of teaching and equipping others to do the work of the ministry, they view them as workers that they pay to do it for them. They fo- their focus is not on great commission and the great commandment. They form power groups. They want church their own way to get the right people on the right committees. Let's get the husband on the finance committee. Let's get the wife on the personnel committee. Let's get the cousin on the building usage committee. And we will have the holy trinity of power in our church. <laughs> it's a little, I'm being a little facetious, but it's the truth. You wouldn't be laughing if you haven't seen it. It happens. An entitled church adds strings to their ties to get what they want. Look, I'm all for someone giving money as a gift to designate money for carpet or whatever it may be. But that's not your tithe. Your tithe is God's. If you think your tithe is to give and to put strings on, you have not read your Bible. And I've had friends in churches and I egg for them because they have been in churches where the churches didn't want to do what they wanted to do. So they starved them out. What did they do? I'm just going to hold my tithe money until I agree with what's going on in our church. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if that's you, I don't want your money. If you are withholding tithes because you don't like the way something's going on at church, your problem is not with that preacher. Your problem is not with that staff member. Your problem is not with that whoever. Your problem is with God. Because God clearly says that if you withhold things that are mine, I'm going to get you. And I've seen friends that they've been at church. they they got to get a second job because... No one's given and people are mad. And then the next Sunday when they are gone, they have a record number of offerings that pay off everything that they were in debt to. God helped them. I thank God I'm not in a church like that. There is no right of entitlement for the believer, folks. Jesus puts it this way in Philippians 2. Verses 5 through 7. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position as a slave. Folks, Jesus does not want us to grow proud over the things he enables us to accomplish through his spirit. Jesus himself 
who was God, humbled himself and took all of that deity. And he restricted it by putting on this earth suit made of dirt and water and chemicals. And had the very breath of God breathed into it. Any servant of God should not expect a special reward for doing what he or she is supposed to do in the first place. It's just what we do. What do we do? He said, he laid it out in the other verses. We resist the temptation to sin. We be the best example we can for others. We look after those who are growing in their faith. We lovingly correct and forgive believers who are biblically wrong. That's just what we do. So go do it. Do you need to confess a spirit of entitlement today in your life? Do you need to offer forgiveness to someone? Do you need to receive forgiveness? Does your life choices strengthen the faith of those around you? Or is it stalling it? Let me ask you this. Are you mature enough in your faith to accept rebuking and correction when someone comes to you? If you are proud of yourself for what you did for Jesus today, he is not proud of you. Stay humble. Stay needy. And count your blessings before him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for reminding us that you love us. But we are supposed to serve you just because you have served us and you love us. There are no special accolades, Lord, that you have given us the opportunity to be the church. And by being the church, that means being a good example. That means representing you. And that means correcting others, forgiving others, and most of all, restoring others, Lord. May we not look for a pat on the back or an extra bill in our wallet. But may we just do what we do because you have called us to do it. Just like your son did. If there's one person here today that wants to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, or they have had that spirit of entitlement, or they have had that longing to have a stronger faith, and they realize today they just need to use whatever is there. If they'd like to pray at the altar or pray with me, May they do that as they respond during this offering, during this invitation. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?